Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Library Podcast. I am Dama Tamnawala, and you know my co-host, Garrett McGilvery. Oh, hello, everyone. Turn that down. Uh, hello, everyone. We are back. We're so happy to be here after a long summer away and, you know, eight or nine weddings, as I'm sure you guys all went to one of those. Today, we're trying a little bit of a different format where we're going to dive into some current events, current newsworthy commercial real estate news events and see how we do with that. Um, we're going to start rolling the program of having our real estate market leader, thought leadership uh, personalities coming on here. We've got a bunch of fantastic guests planned, but today we want to dive into the Edmonton vacancy rate at you know 20%. I've heard as low as, as high as 30%. Flow, which is Adam Newman's company, you guys know the the, the founder of WeWork uh, or We Crashed, as as they call it now. We want to talk a little bit about the guideline increases in Ontario for next year and where we think the apartment market is going. The apartment conference was actually just this past week. Um, current date right now, is September fourteenth, and if we, I don't know, I don't really have too many thoughts on this, but if Garrett has any thoughts on the uh, the big mirror structure in Saudi Arabia, Middle East, uh, you know, w what's going on with that? Could we do something like that in Canada? I don't know. We can get into all of it. So thank you for being here. Why don't we, uh, why don't we, why don't you hear your thoughts first, Garrett, on the Edmonton office market? What the fuck is going on over there? Well, I guess Edmonton and I guess Calgary as well. This is in Calgary at like 30, 35%. Calgary not doing so hot. Vacancy. Yeah, San Francisco Edmonton downtown. Too. You kind of see Edmonton. <laughs> Who wants to be in Edmonton? But Calgary. How much of that is related to oil? <laughs> None. None. I don't. Well, is it there? There. So they call their office market like the blemish on their otherwise perfect society right now. Everybody. <laughs> no, everybody loves Alberta right now, and and our commercial real estate brokers certainly at Collier's are. I think they're starting to do quite well unless they're in office leasing. And so I think, I think it's, it's really just around a broader discussion of work from home and, you know, in markets where they already had a little bit of a higher vacancy rate, will those markets ever come back? What do you think? Well, it's tough to say because obviously like, the number one type of job attractor that people are trying to go towards now is technology based. Like that's the, the biggest upcoming trend in terms of, you know, new jobs that are coming into any market really. Right. Yeah. Am I wrong? Yeah. Correct. And all the, all the big leases are done by, you know, Google and Amazon, even in the office space. Yeah. It seems like Shopify, Hootsuite, these are the guys taking floors. Other than, you know, the traditional guys like the major banks, government, et cetera. Yeah, the standard guys. Um, these are the guys that are the net, the net new that are coming in as new entrants. And, you know, IT has always had a, you know, remote work philosophy. And then COVID has seemed to accelerate that even further for a lot of, 
you know, their engineers, let's say, not obviously client facing individuals, but the ones that, you know, hunger down at home and write a couple hundred pages of code for whatever application that they're trying to work on. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious about how, so we both have different styles. I personally hate work from home. Even during the pandemic, I was coming in uh, to the Collier's West office in, yes. in the Toronto Etobicoke office. Breaking in, might I say. Breaking in, and then a bunch of us got caught, uh, you know, huddling by the printer, and our managing director told us, hey, you guys got to go home. Um, but I originally started in the North office, so I had the key to that one. So I went there, uh, and then I got caught there and, and sent, sent home. Um, and then I was in the downtown office, happened again. So, um, but I like the office. I think it's a, a good place for your, you know, not only collaboration, but your mental health and everything like that. I, I think a lot of people are really struggling um, without a true kind of sense of culture and community and everything. But that's more on the personal side. On the real estate side, thinking back to markets like uh, Alberta, downtown, at uh, Calgary with 30% vacancy, 20% vacancy, whatever it is in their office market, what then happens with that real estate? Because like that problem might get even worse as some of those, you know, five-year leases roll over that were, that are currently, you know, you know, people looking to sublet that space. They don't want to release that space. Uh, so if that problem gets worse, like I know the, the, you know, downtown, Edmonton uh, city councilors are talking about converting certain office buildings. Why don't we talk about that? Like, do you think that, do you think that we'll see more of that strategy going forward and kind of why or why not? I definitely think that that's going to be something that's going to be a major investment opportunity for a lot of different people. Cause you know, you see it in the news every other day, we're in a housing crisis. We don't have enough places uh, to house everybody that we already have existing in, in our country right now. And when you're sitting at uh, 20 to 30% vacancy, like presumably those suburban office holders that uh, aren't meeting their debt covenants and, you know, need to sell at a pressurized price, like people can take those buildings and flip into apartments or flip them into condos and make some profit because you know, there's obviously an attraction to the Calgary market because it's significantly cheaper than where we are sitting in the GTA. Mm. Um, it's affordable or it's considered affordable, especially if there are people that have the ability to even work remote that might move outside of, you know, markets like uh, the GTA and may move into places like Alberta and still re work remotely within Canada, but in a cheaper environment. So the opportunity to present those types of new units to those types of um, purchasers is a no-brainer. Yeah, it really, it really does take a certain, um, like one of the challenges with converting an office building is, let's take in Toronto, why it would never happen, why it's harder for it to happen in Toronto. We have all these zoning restrictions and there needs to be a certain amount of light getting to the bedroom. And most office buildings are designed with these sprawling floor plates mm -hmm. where, you know, there's an elevator in the center. Um, and then so a lot of the floor space area is actually internal. So if you actually were to make a, a building that was designed the way that it is congruent with Toronto construction guidelines, it would have these super long, narrow 
basically have one window at the end and a super, super long, like, strange unit. For sure. And aside from the other problems like ventilation and, like, all the stuff that you have to think about. Um, so for that reason, it doesn't really happen in Toronto. But that's why, like, I think Alberta, like, the 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 province and the various cities are are trying to incentivize that giving grants to convert these buildings because typically it's very expensive. Yeah. And it would be. And as you said, the configuration of an office is significantly different than that of an apartment or a condo. Like you look at an office, generally they're square, which makes sense. You just have all the elevators right in the center and then a giant space outwards for the various floor plates. But when you look at generally condominium and apartment buildings, they're mainly rectangular because that's what you're looking to, you know, construct most forward, uh, most units to have an exterior window or light that has to come in because it meets the, you know, provincial guidelines. You want to hear, hear a billion dollar idea? What? So I was talking with uh, one of the major developers in uh, Toronto. Yeah. And they're building a seniors housing uh, facility. And, uh, and, and the seniors housing operator has decided, okay, you know, now is not the time to go forward with this strategy. And speaking with the developer, he's saying, well, we can't use any of their existing plans. They're fucked. Like the way that you design a seniors house, a seniors housing facility is so different from how you design a uh, traditional multifamily building because they put all their common areas on the same floor. Instead of having podiums, they they really put it all on the same floor so that the tenants don't have to go anywhere. It's like community mm-hmm. gathering areas. Yeah. Um, but with that in mind, that leads to these obtuse, crazy floor plates. So it might not be perfect, but perhaps there's a way where you could cost-effectively convert office buildings to seniors' housing. And that is a big problem that we have. With We don't have enough seniors' housing. Nobody really talks about that because it's not as s- sexy and it's a bit morbid, but... Um, that nobody's told me that that's a bad idea yet. So no, for sure. I think that's something that still could be done given the less traditional floor plates of an existing office building, which you'd be able to convert. Who knows? I've actually don't believe I've ever heard it been done before, at least in Canada. Boom. There's your, there's your value from listening to this podcast right here. Yeah, there you go. Please uh, like, and subscribe this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Like the, I also just wanted to mention that you hear about these conversions all the time, right? So during the pandemic, you had hotels, which were not getting used. And, you know, people always, we had a lot of student housing operators calling us and saying, hey, can we buy that and convert that to student housing, right? So there are always, there's always a a higher and better use depending on the economic climate, right? So Yeah, for sure. And then you get those opportunistic buys, which I'm sure again, are always still out there and just need to be able to find them. Next, we wanted to talk about Adam Newman's company, his new company, Flow. For those of you who don't know Adam Newman, Adam Newman is the founder of WeWork. He was the, uh, he, he was the iconic, disastrous, amazing, founder of WeWork who, you know, invented this culture. And then, you know, for those that don't know the story, WeWork basically, you know, dominated that subcategory. Sorry to Regis. Regis also does very well and they're profitable. Um, But 
WeWork blew up that that subcategory. Everybody's heard of WeWork now. Um, and then what happened is SoftBank, uh, what's the guy's name, Massa's son, came over and injected some ungodly amount of billions into this company um, at a valuation that was essentially a tech valuation, like some insane multiple on their revenue. Uh, but of course, WeWork is not a tech company. They are a real estate company. And, you know, when economies go down, the company just gets lambasted because they, what they do is they sign long-term leases and they have short-term tenancies. And then all of a sudden their tenants dry up. They've, they've signed long-term leases and have these like insane uh, obligations to pay. So um, anyways, Adam Newman went, the, you know, basically the valuation in its height went to 47 billion and then back down to, I think around 3 billion. The company looked like it was on its last legs. People said that it was, it should be valued at zero. And right now it's like a walking, you know, it's doing okay. And I think they're striving for profitability. He rolled off into the sunset with a big paycheck of, you know, something like a half a billion dollars. Um, and now he's reemerged and he's starting a new company in the real estate space called Flow. Um, just a couple months ago, it was reported that Andreessen Horowitz, which is a big uh, tech investor, uh, injected about $350 million into this company, Flow, which is said to, you know, change the real estate space. Let's, let's, let's read this for a second. Adam Newman purportedly amassed $90 million worth of residences across New York and California. He owns almost 4,000 4, affordable apartments across the world, worth a total of a billion dollars. Yeah, so every, every story that I've seen of this new company, Flow, does not really talk about what the company's doing. It's a really like a vague, you know, says that he's going to change the real estate industry. Yeah, specifically the rental market. The rental market. Like I... I almost, he, he was doing all these sorts of companies. Like he had a company called We Live, right? Which was, there was WeWork in New York and then there was We Live, which was almost like a co-working, you know, uh, Garrett and I have had on co-working companies in the past where you basically charge higher rent per foot and then have more common areas and it cre creates more of like a community and a collaborative environment. So if he, if he's trying to do that with flow, um, you know, I, I could see that being very effective. Like people have talked about co-living for a long time, um, especially in this environment where people are working from home, more lonely, don't have enough, you know, time to collaborate and, you know, be with their friends, whatever it is. Perhaps it could be something exciting. I, I, I think it's really unique that an investor like Andreessen Horowitz, or it might just be Andreessen's like solo company without Ben Horowitz, but a tech investor has invested in this. Um, but I don't think it's a tech company, but uh, I don't know. What do you think, Garrett? Well, I'm still <laughs> trying to figure out what the hell this company does. Because <laughs> it doesn't say, what, doesn't say what it does anyway. No, the fact that even I'm reading the Anderson Horowitz like actual public release on this company and it does not necessarily dictate what it is. They're stipulating that it's a community-centric uh, or community-driven, experience-centric uh, ability for people to, I think, based on this, 
is a, a rent to home rent to own model for homes. Okay. That's what I'm guessing that this is alluding to in the in the vague uh, wording of this um, you know tech investors uh, public statement basically. Rent to own. Well, I will say I will say this. We have a in every market across Canada and the U.S. and everywhere across the globe, seems like we have a huge housing crisis. So, one thing about Adam Newman, he does know how to attack massive problems and build a a brand around that. So, I would bet that this is a, a huge success. Um, if if I was a betting man, which I am. The New York Times, when they describe this company flow, they're like, exact details of the business plan could not be learned. <laughs> As reported by the New York Times. So, I, 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 you, know what, you know what I think is the funniest thing about this? Not to just like react to stuff on the internet, but if you look through any of these magazines, Esquire, New York Times, or whatever, the way that they describe this guy is so negative. They go, they go, and, you know, to your dismay, Adam Newman has just started another company. It's like... <laughs> I, I heavily enjoy Vox's headline. Which is what? Which is, uh, why does the WeWork guy get to fail up? <laughs> like... <laughs> she's probably writing that from a WeWork office, too. Yeah, 100%. They probably are. But I, probably I, think, I, I, I think that anybody who wants to add value in the residential space is amazing because like we have such a huge issue and i heard i heard this uh, i heard somebody else mention this or somebody wrote about this like he's so good at creating a national brand there aren't you know our largest owner now uh in canada is starlight right with however many units seventy thousand units across canada or something yeah. like that and they have their kind of two-tone classic starlight with you know they try and do you know decent renovations sometimes they do great renovations and they try and really set a standard mm -hmm. but even the largest operator does not have a brand that like calls out to you like imagine there was a co-living i must we have to guess at what this guy is doing with this company but imagine it was a co-living center and he always took you know one of the biggest buildings in whatever major city he was in and he painted it you know, bright orange or mm -hmm. bright pink or something that you could not ignore. And you would go there and you'd hang out at this place and you knew it as like the flow center or whatever. I don't know. There's, there's nobody who's done that. And like, if you think about how big this guy does things, you know, he once said he wants to be the world's first trillionaire, which is obviously going to be Elon Musk, but yes. Um, <laughs> so good, so <laughs> good luck. Not going to be him. But he might, you know, if anybody, he, he dreams big enough. So who knows? More Top 20 to is still open. I wanted to talk about uh, last week. Was it last week? You're yeah. talking about politics? No, last week I was at the oh, Canadian apartment. apartment investment conference uh, thrown by Informa, and they do a great job. It was really fun. Y you know, I think three years ago they had, whatever, 900 people or something there, and this year they had almost the same amount. And uh, and everybody was, you know, saying hello and excited and wondering what the hell is going on in the apartment market. All investment grade real estate has been impacted by interest rates. But given the market fundamentals in the apartment market, 
specifically, you know, I'm in Ontario, but you know, you think about Ontario as an example, the market fundamentals are so good as in immigration strong, the student housing markets on fire, people are coming back to Canada, um, rental growth is ridiculous with rents growing like 8% month over month. Uh, if you can generate turnover, which is mm-hmm. very challenging to do. Um, and so, you know, the whole vibe of the conference is people going, well, you know, where have cap rates gone? I, I think they've gone up a little bit. I'm not sure if they've gone up a little bit. Okay, cap rates don't matter, but they matter to my lender. But they don't matter. It's IRR driven, but it's 10 years. But so, and so everybody's trying to figure it out. And then you have like the, you have a bunch of brokers there who, you know, everybody is selling some sort of portfolio or most people are selling something. I personally have three big portfolios on the market. We just launched one in Toronto, 426 units, seven buildings across the city. It's fantastic. Um, I probably shouldn't mention this in the same breath, but um, I heard a really funny uh, line from Mark Kenny, which is he said, Mark Kenny being the CEO of Caprete, uh, one of the largest owners in a multifamily in Canada, and he said, uh, he said, there's a new F word, which is what? Free and clear. Free and clear. Yeah. So um, meaning that rates have gone up so quickly that if you have a project that has assumable financing, huge advantage oh, um, sure. to, the, to the value. If you have a project where the owners have agreed to do some sort of vendor financing or they're okay with it. Um, a lot of our pitches now contain some sort of, you know, well, we would suggest that you go to market with, you know, something that mentions you're open to vendor financing if you are. Um, or, you know, the alternative, you know, projects that are doing well are um, projects with additional land where you can build something or, you know, thank God for this, projects with scale um, because a lot of the larger players are still very bullish and not only that, it's just so hard to get a serious footprint in a great place like, you know, Toronto or, you know, some of the other major cities in Canada. So the opportunities with scale are still doing very well. But yeah, everybody's kind of wondering what, where is the market? And it's, it was funny to see because over the summer, transaction activity slowed dramatically. I think like, you know, when the summer finished, we were only at 60% of the transaction activity that we in total sales volume um, that we had had the previous year because everybody's trying to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Um, and now things are picking up. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I think that, I think that good opportunities are still going to do very well, you know? Um, meaning I don't think that there's going to be much of a price change or big haircut, uh, for again, opportunities, like I mentioned, scale, uh, in place financing, VTBs, some land, or you know, again, an irreplaceable asset. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly am seeing on the smaller end of things um, a little bit of softening. If you're asking me, <laughs> if you're asking me. So, yeah, is there any softening that's going to be happening, Gamer? On the smaller end of things. So yeah, that's good. It, for for those for those smaller buildings where uh, the purchaser was typically the private guy, who was a high leverage buyer, and he's going out to buy a you know fifteen to twenty unit building, there, 
there is definitely going to be um, softening in the price that you'll see on on the bid date for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm thinking those. If you want to maintain your pricing and with those types of assets, you got to go. You got to go VTB. You got to you got to do something, and and that's just you know being reasonable, right? Yeah, like a lot of people are th- from the financing side of things are are estimating that the current financing market is going to continue to rise for at least another year or two years and then there might be a bit of a falling off after that or at least it'll plateau and then steadily come down um like a lot of people are actually taking some variable financing for like a two-year term right they think that on year three that they might either have to take another one-year term or it'll be more favorable to take fixed financing at that point because there might be some rate cuts just to, you know, boost the economy after it gets hammered for the next two years. Yeah. It's a, it's a crazy, it'll be crazy to see what happens. I think we're still so early in this. We're right in the middle of it still. Like inflation is, you know, being tamed. It's it's slowed down. Yeah. It's slowed down. It's not, it's still there. It's not like fixed or anything along those lines, but it's like, you know, they're doing what they can from a, a fiscal policy standpoint. Yeah. But I mean, you like, I think I was telling you this story, but I'll share with the audience. Like uh, a colleague and I were talking with this guy who owns a lot of real estate in, let's say, London, Ontario. It's not London, Ontario, but he has 50 plus buildings and they're all they're all valued at, you know, 500 grand to probably the larger ones are kind of like close to $3 million. And he's talking about how he typically has shorter term leases and he has, um, because he thinks, you know, a lot of his properties are developable, right? Mm -hmm. Some of, some of them are, but he, for that reason, he puts in shorter term leases, doesn't want to lock himself down. And he also had in shorter term financing. And so where he was originally, you know, having these mixed use buildings retail with maybe like a duplex or triplex above, and financing them in like the mid three percent range, he now went to go refinance several of these properties, and the bank came back and told him, "Yeah, it's gonna be seven and a half percent." It's like, yeah, and that's the bank. <laughs> oh my god! So there's gonna like guy guy when I talk about the little guy getting burned a little bit, that's kind of what I'm. That's and that's at the very small end, but those guys are are gonna be in for a, a little bit of a challenging ride oh yeah for sure but and i think it's gonna get worse for those guys yeah because they're less capitalized and they have less money to be able to play around with where bigger guys have a lot more cash flow that you know if there's a deficiency somewhere in their portfolio then it gets picked up somewhere else so they're able to you know weather the storm significantly easier than some of the smaller guys that you know are or maybe a little more desperate at this particular point in time. I agree. I will say um, one thing, Garrett, that I just wanted to address is my one big concern about the apartment space. Because again, like I think long term, the fundamentals are just so ridiculously strong. And yeah, if, you, if you're investing like in a time horizon over ten years, you're good MTV. to go. Yeah, um, my my biggest concern right now is actually not interest rates. It's that all of these rental projects are getting canceled and even a lot of condo projects are getting canceled and or held back or slowed down or put on hold, whatever it is. 
And so in a couple years time, like we already have a rental crisis where rents are mm-hmm. escalating, whatever, 25% a year. Um, what's going to, where are we going to be in two years? And we're not even building a pipeline. And, and so the, my biggest fear other than, you know, everybody needs a house, blah, blah, blah. My biggest fear from an investment perspective is that the political landscape is going to change because they're going to be in a position where the only solution is to enact much stricter rental controls or, or something, which as we both know, as most people in real estate know, that's not, that's a short term fix and it's going to exacerbate the problem. But I, I really do, I'm worried that that's on the horizon because now more than ever, we're in a political environment where that can, that can happen. For sure. Like, <laughs> I guess from a political standpoint, it's unfortunate that most of the time, everything only gets dealt with in four year cycles. Um, so when it comes to, you know, trying to fix rent and trying to think rent control is going to be something that's going to save the day versus simply just, you know, better incentivizing apartment construction so that, you know, you can actually increase the supply of, of all of these things. Like you go down the one thing that I've never really understood Again, this is more of a Toronto problem, but when you take line one all the way down Bloor Street, you're met with nothing but two and three story buildings. Where or Danforth. Or Dan yeah, and Danforth going on the east end too, but it's like that is like the most prime possible locations for anything to be built. Why are those two or three story buildings in contrast to having them be at very least mid rise buildings? where there could be seven, eight stories along a subway. So solve the housing crisis right now. What, what happens? We get Greg Linturn back on here. Greg yeah. Linturn back. But all, so, but are you suggesting like the best way to do it would just be like, uh, you know, along these higher order transit zones, you, there's no, there's no ability for the nimbyism to slow things down. You just go 70, 70 stories. Here you go. Yeah, that's uh, honestly because NIMBYism is is a major playing factor when it comes to any form of approval that's coming out of, you know, any municipality. Like if you have, you know, very wealthy and well-connected individuals that are living in these areas, they're going to shoot down any tall building that you're going to throw in their within their eyesight, you know. So it's like, but if it's automatic approval for these types of areas or they're already been pre-approved in blanketed spots, like people are going to be able to build people will buy up those buildings and they're going to put up towers, you know, and then coupled with obviously CMHC financing for construction or anything along those lines or any other government incentives that they do, but like making those more known to developers, making them more appealing to them because presently I would say that it's not necessarily the easiest process to get all of these, you know, sideline benefits that they have. But if they put them together in a proper package and just simply, you know, push it down the developer's throat, then developers will see the actual value add play that they can actually make some money with these locations. Solved. There it's you go. done. So everyone can sleep easily tonight because we got it. It's done. Yeah. Um, but I... I think that's a good place to end it. For those who were listening to this podcast, 
thank you so much for listening. Again, this is a new format that we're trying out. And I think as we continue to do more like these, in addition to having our superstar guests on, I think they'll continue to improve. And we, we, we just want to make these uh, as valuable as possible uh, to you guys in, in, in the way of bringing you value. So anyways, thanks for listening. Hope you have a great day. Uh, this Should we do a, a sponsorship? Might as well. This uh, podcast was brought to you by Green Fox. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by Green Fox Capital. That's greenfoxcapital.com. What is Green Fox Capital? Well, they do debt and equity advisory across Canada. They're actually the best company in the world. <laughs> This is a this is a it's a new company with uh, very experienced debt advisors, and so to be genuine, you guys should check out www.greenfoxcapital.com if you're a commercial real estate developer, broker, person in the business looking to get something financed. Give those people a call or submit a contact form, whatever you want to do. We appreciate you. Support us by supporting them, and thanks for listening. We're out. <laughs>